A consideration arose in me, how it was said that all Christians are believers, both Protestants and Catholics. And the Lord opened to me, that if all were believers, then they were all born of God and passed from death to life. And as such, none were true believers. And though others said they were believers, yet they were not. From the first chapter of George Fox's journal. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting series on William Schuwen's The True Christian's Faith and Experience Briefly Declared. This is session four. We are halfway through the second of the three prefaces. We are on page 16 of the 2007 text. This section, the second preface, has to do with a number of biblical excerpts that William Schuwen felt important to present at the beginning of this work. We left off here on page 16 of the 2007 edition. You'll find this edition on the Ohio Yearly Meeting website, along with an 1830 edition of this work. Just a couple of comments in our previous sessions. In the first preface, there is a sort of a bit of a self-portrait of William Schuwen in terms of how he himself was once one of these nominal Christians, a Christian in name only, and how he began to be focused on the light of Christ, the Spirit of God within himself as he was directed there, and then felt he was on the path to becoming a true Christian. A couple of other things I just wanted to mention. In the past, I've mentioned this major thing to keep in the back of your minds, and that is that there is a real distinction, a kind of understanding of reality as being broken into two domains. One is an inward domain and the other is an outward domain. We will talk more about this as we go on throughout the series, but it's important to, to keep that kind of understanding that there is this outward domain of what's physical, what's worldly, what's material, compared to what's inward, what's inner, which is the spirit, the mind, and it goes on and on for quite a few uh, things that we can talk about there, which we eventually will get to. The thing that Chewin already mentioned in the earlier part of this section number, preface number two, is focus on the eighth chapter of Romans. That's very important, that chapter. But also he comments, and I think he will comment again, on a passage from Romans chapter 10, verse 8, where he says, Who shall ascend or descend or go beyond the seas to fetch it, this guide, divine guide? But it is nigh thee, it is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart, it's within you, that you may hear it and obey it and be guided by it. Again, this is important. Also, another very important passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, is where it says in the King James Version, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I translated that as I will translate most of our sessions here into more modern English to save some time. But this would be translated, as I understand it, God who commanded light, illumination, divine illumination, to shine out of darkness, out of ignorance, has shown in our hearts, in our consciousness, in our inner being, to give us the illumination of the Shekinah, 
You have the experience of the Shekinah, the, the manifest presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. This is a, such a crucial phrase in all of early and later traditional Quaker understanding of that illumination is within us. Because it then goes on in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we have this profound treasure within ourselves, within our own bodies. And it's not by anything that we have done, but it's directly from God. We will probably be talking about that more in the future. Okay, so I'm going to begin the reading where we left off. Share the screen again. I counsel you to buy some of my gold tested in the fire, that you may be rich in white clothing, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness not appear. And anoint, rub thy eyes, your eyes with eyesalve, so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Transform yourselves. Behold, I stand at the door. Look, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, just as I also overcame and have sat down with my father on his throne. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And that whole paragraph is from Revelations chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. So many people have probably heard verse 20 spoken many times, Behold, I stand at the door. What they need to remember is that immediately before in verse 19 is this very important word, a command to repent. Not in the modern sense of feeling sorrow or regret, but to really transform your way of thinking, transform your whole mindset. That is what's important. Out of a worldly, a physical, a type into a much more spiritual type of mindset. Then you have, behold, I stand at the door. Uh, I think something is lost if only verse 20 is mentioned without the previous words. That's unfortunate because you're leaving out how this can happen and why it would happen. One other thing I will say here, Jesus is saying, I also overcame. He says in the gospel according to John, I have overcome the world. I have conquered the world. That is, I have overcome that kind of mindset, that kind of worldly, everyday thinking. And that's a powerful thing here to say that we too need to do that so that we can sit with him on his throne with God the Father. Henry, is this use of the word even in that verse, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame? Is that meaning specifically in that spot? Yes, specifically, or you could you translate it also as just, just as I also overcame. The most common meaning of the word even in the 17th century is specifically. It rarely has the meaning of the modern sense of even. Oh. But it's most often specifically or something like just, just as I overcame. So specifically is the correct translation here or just. And I have sat down. I am sat down, uh, older spelling here, with my father on his throne. That concept makes it much more powerful as far as our brotherhood with Christ. Just as I also overcame, they will also. Yes, this is an important thing to think about because Jesus was human. 
we understand him today as being divine, but he was also human. And in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have that important passage of the temptations after his baptism in the River Jordan. There'd be no sense in having these temptations if he couldn't sin. As a human, he could sin, but he did not. He did not give in. That's an important thing to remember. It would make no sense to tempt someone who can't sin. But Jesus was human as well as divine. Okay, let's continue with this passage. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat some of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no man knows except he that receives it. Now, the hidden manna, I understand it to be, is spiritual food. In the Lord's Prayer, the, the verse that most often in English gets translated as, give us this day our daily bread. That's not really the word daily there. Give us this day our super essential bread. It's that bread and that food that comes down from heaven. That's the hidden manna that is understood here. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I will give him a white stone. It's important here to know that in the Roman Empire, when you went to some sort of activity at an arena or a coliseum or stadium, a white stone was like an admission card. So that's the sense here in Revelation. And I would give him a, a, an admission that will get him in, a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no man knows except he that receives it. I'm not sure what that reference is other than the new man is the new creature that is born again, given birth to by God, being born again, regenerated, as friends most often use that word, regeneration. He who believes has the witness in himself. That witness is the Lord within us. He who overcomes shall inherit, shall obtain all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It's so interesting to understand that a number of places, these true Christians are called sons of God. Jesus is the son of God, but he's the unique son of God, translated in the King James Version as the only begotten, the one of a kind son of God. But we too can become sons of God. Just as it says in the Beatitudes, I think I may have mentioned this last week or earlier, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, the Greek says, sons of God. It's a powerful statement to become a son of God. That doesn't mean only males. I want to make that very clear. The word for son, like so many other supposedly masculine words, are inclusive. He shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable, the, the loathsome and the murderer and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelation 21 verses 7 and 8. This lake of fire, you must remember that what fire does is burn something completely, so there's nothing left but ashes. And if you think of eternal fire, we're talking here about an eternal death. And here in Revelation 21, it says the second death. The first death I understand to be our mortal death, the death of our bodies. 
The second death is complete extinction, complete loss of union with God. So many denominations understand hell as a kind of physical fire. But here, there's something different in terms of saying this is a second death. This is a death of whatever is left of us, our consciousness, our soul, our spirit. If we are not in union with God in our lives, our liars, sorcerers, idolaters. Idolater is someone who worships other gods, an idolater, rather than the true God. So this is a strong statement here. I hope it's not understood of a much more literal sense, which is not what is being said here in terms of a second death. A second death is a second death, a permanent forever death. Thus, I have here transcribed and set before you these scriptures above, being very divine and heavenly sayings, greatly worthy of your reading them over and over again. And in that light and grace which shines and appears in your heart, and is able to remove the covering and take away the veil from off of them, I desire you to weigh and consider them and measure and test yourself with them. The light and grace, we're talking here about that light of Christ within, that grace of God, that grace of Christ, that help, that aid that is given to us, the anointing within, that the anointed one means the Christ, the Messiah within. That is something within us that can aid in removing misunderstandings and taking away misconceptions in reading the Holy Scriptures. In a minute, we'll see what William Schuin here says about himself, which is, I think is very interesting. If I had not the remembrance still in my mind how I often read those Scriptures and many similar ones, while my understanding of what I read, I think something's missing here. While I'm understanding what I read, I did not receive the comfort of them or witness the truth of them in myself. I say, were it not for this remembrance and the knowledge of the true light that now shines out of darkness, 2 Corinthians, we had read earlier, I would be astonished and wonder how the nominal Christian, the Christian in name only, who reads and professes belief in the holy, plain testimonies, precepts, exhortations, and glorious promises recorded in the Holy Scriptures, and, however, lived in and borne witness to by various true Christians now in this age, that those nominal Christians would oppose and contradict them and understand nothing of them. It's a kind of convoluted sentence. But what he's saying is that he misunderstood what was being said in these scriptures that he's quoted in this second preface at one time. But now he has such a different understanding that he understands how these Christians in name only misunderstand these scriptures or use them in an incorrect way. They, they don't have that true divinely given understanding of what they really mean. That you need the Spirit, the grace of God, the light of Christ within you to help you understand what is really being said here. As the Apostle Paul says, letter killeth, literal interpretations kill. But on the other hand, the Spirit gives life. Understanding the true Spirit behind these passages in the Holy Scriptures is what really matters. Henry, I think mine has the sentence that's missing. Yes, what does it say? 
Had I not the remembrance still upon my mind, how I often read those scriptures, and many the like, while my understanding was clouded, and the veil over my heart, and did not understand what I read, nor receive the comfort of them, nor witness the truth thereof in myself. Yes, that's it. I have the book in front of me. It would take me a minute to find it, but that's what I remember Mm -hmm. too. Oh, yes, I just found it here. Okay. Had I not the remembrance still upon my mind, how I often read those scriptures and many similar ones, while my understanding was clouded and the veil was over my heart, and I did not understand what I read or receive the comfort of them or witness their truth in myself. And then he goes, I say, were it not for this remembrance and the knowledge of the true light that now shines out of darkness, and then goes on. So he understands why Christians in name only have befuddled, confusing understandings, that you need to have the help of the Lord to really understand the true spiritual meaning behind any scripture passage. Though the nominal Christian, the Christian name only, professes scripture to be his rule, he is so far from being ruled by them himself that he hates and persecutes those who are and who have received the good things they testify of. He's referring now to those Quakers who are being persecuted severely for their understanding, their interpretation, and what they really mean. And were it not that the Holy Scriptures had a great esteem in the feelings of the people of those nations who call themselves Christianity, and that they bore so plain evidence to the truth of the doctrines taught there, the teachings taught there, and the heavenly states now professed and enjoyed by the true Christian, that true Christian would be even more hated, persecuted, and cried out against than he actually is or was. So for this reason and many various other reasons, he has great cause to praise God that the scriptures have been preserved and the holy divine sayings and testimonies of the righteous folks delivered down to this age, so clear, true, and plain as they are. For he alone enjoys the benefit, privilege, and comfort of them through the virtue and operation of the light, love, and spirit of God, which they testify of, working in his inward man. Again, that is the the new creation, the new creature being born again, truly being born again. And unless this is known, the scriptures and all heavenly things are like a sealed book to you. Let your natural faculties, wisdom, and acquired attainments be ever so great. Therefore, your duty is, above all things, to listen and obey the voice of God and regard the inspiration of the Almighty, which gives one understanding that you may learn his heavenly precepts and understand his divine secrets, mysteries, and enjoy his glorious promises, that is, entrance into that state of heaven, that state of God, that kingdom of God, and be made wise for salvation, and so inherit, that is, obtain everlasting life, peace, and glory, and know an entrance ministered into the joy of the Lord. You have to recall that today, with all the many thousands of different denominations, Christian denominations in the world, 
you have just as many different interpretations of scripture as there are denominations almost. So what Schuin is pointing out here is that there is really one clear, true interpretation that matters. And that's the one that we need to strive for. We need to be aware of this witness in ourselves, the anointing within ourselves, the, the Messiah within, the illuminator, the illumination, the grace of God. All of these things are words describing that same divine agent within us, the witness of God. The word of God is a very common one, especially among early Christians. That word of God meant God expressing himself, trying to express himself in us. That's the word of God in us. I've mentioned so often in probably the great majority of Christian denominations, the Bible is referred to as the word of God. That wasn't what was understood among early Christians. And the word of God was this living divine agent, I think is the word I want to use here, that is being focused on here to really help us get to the true meaning of what is being said in a passage. Comments, thoughts? I'm thinking of George Fox, his statement that Margaret Fail reports when he was preaching at the steeple house, and he says, that which you speak, do you have it inwardly from the Spirit of God? I'm not quoting exactly, but... Yes, um, I uh, that's right. Go ahead. And I was looking this morning at the first chapter of Ephesians, and there, I can't quote it exactly, but the effect of the working of the mighty power of the Lord is that he puts within us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Mm-hmm. It's sad, but you have various denominations translating these verses differently. Even today, there are more than two dozen English translations that are out there in the last hundred years. It's very frustrating to see how some of them are so different or maybe so far away from the original that this only confuses people more. Even with a confusing translation, I don't recall who said this, but in the 17th century with the King James Version, which was a pretty good translation for its time, but there were mistakes and errors there. And, and someone like George Fox pointed them out. I'm trying to remember who it was. An early woman Quaker also was making the same point that the gainsayers, those who were opposed to her, were really misunderstanding the true meaning of the passage. And I think she pointed out something that made it clear that they were doing this. She was correct. The same thing true today, that we just need to be careful and really pray for guidance, as we're using this word here for the anointed Jesus as a guide with a capital G, our guide, our witness of what really is truth with a capital T. And at least an earnest, that is a foreshadowing, a, a pledge of all these things, you are to know, revealed, felt, and enjoyed within yourself before you go from here and be no more seen among men. So that in actuality, all these promises of this kind of divine illumination this, this obtaining something of eternal life, of entering into the kingdom of God, something of that, an earnest, a pledge, or a foretaste of all these things you are to know now. 
as revealed and felt and enjoyed actually within yourself before you pass away and are no longer seen among men. This was a Quaker understanding. Heaven isn't something necessarily after our physical death. There is this possibility of intimations and entering into that same state at times through what I was saying earlier, repentance, this basic transformation in yourself, being born again, being given birth to by God. So that that's the second man within you, the second creature, the, the self that really matters. Therefore, do not put off, do not put the day of the Lord afar off or say in your heart, the Lord is delaying his coming, for he is waiting to show himself gracious to you, and he has come near for judgment, and he is standing specifically at the door, and is appearing at the gate and entrance of your heart, of your consciousness, of your inner self, and his appearance you may infallibly know, distinct from all other appearances, because it judgeth it assesses and condemns every appearance of evil. And not only so, but if you open the gate and entertain him in your heart, he will furnish you with power and strength against it, against evil, and fill your temple, fill your body with his heavenly treasures of wisdom and glory. So you shall not only read and hear of good things, but understand possess and enjoy them, and be able to obey this exhortation, abstain from every appearance of evil. There was a focus of friends saying that those true friends who followed, Quakers who understood this and followed this path, possessed, came into possession rather than just professing what other Christians were talking about that they really entered into this deeper spiritual realization of Christ within them, of that union that we call heaven or the state of God or eternal life, that this is something that should not be expected, something after death, that there is a, an earnest, a foretaste of this that is possible before. There's a lot to think about here in this passage and what he's saying in this second preface. It's so much greater a thing to really follow, obey, listen to God than to just say, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The words, the verbal saying that is not enough. It's the actions. It's something else that means so much more than just saying that. Saying that is fine, but it's what really matters are the actions. That's what matters. And in his time, there was so much of what friends saw, Quakers saw as hypocrisy. There's so much in all the verbalizing. Others had the Bible. They could quote it just like anyone can quote anything that they've memorized. But it's a very different thing to come into that experience. Experience was such an important word. Well, they used the word experiment at that time, which meant experience. Uh, let's read this last sentence here in this second preface. In this saying, once spoken to Cain, the firstborn, after his transgression, his sin, universally concerns you and all mankind, and is sounded daily in their ears. If you do well, shall you not be accepted by God? But if you do evil, sin is lying at your door. Genesis 4, verse 3. Tribulation and anguish attends every soul of man that does evil. 
let him profess whatever he will or wants to. Romans 2, verse 9. This is the conclusion of the second preface. Any Chad has his hand up, I think. I just wanted to reiterate, uh, somebody was saying something to me about church, me man-made church, and my response, which I think came from the Spirit, was, I think we should focus a lot more on kingdom than a few hours of man-made church, because kingdom is 24-7, 365. Kingdom is the power of God moving through us and moving according to the power of God and the leading of God and the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our hearts. Mm-hmm. If we have not the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts, then we do not have Christ and we're not living according to the kingdom and the king. This word kingdom is a translation of the Greek word in the New Testament, basileia, which does mean kingdom, but most of the time that word does not mean kingdom in the sense we think of as a kingdom, a country ruled by a king. It refers to something not as physical, not as outward. It really is more like the English word state or domain. The kingdom of God is the domain of God. It's the state of God entering into that state of God. Our English word state is a very good word to translate that because it has those two senses that the Greek word did in terms of a state can be a country, a state, or it can be a state of being, a state of mind, a state of consciousness. Very much like that word kingdom, entering into the kingdom of God, entering into the kingdom of heaven is entering into this state of consciousness that one must first go through this full repentance, this true transformation of oneself first in terms of how one thinks, acts, speaks. That's critical. It says in Luke, when Jesus was asked about when the kingdom of God would come, in the original Greek, it's unfortunate there are such mistranslations in modern English translations. He says the kingdom of God is within you, plural. He's talking even to these Pharisees who are out there to get him executed. But he's saying the kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom, the state of God is in you, potentially. It may only be a seed, but just as the Christ within you is there potentially, the Spirit of God is there, these things are there, but it doesn't mean people are immediately aware of it or trying to even access it. And the true apostles, the true ministers, the true teachers of those first Christian generations went out trying to minister and explain this to people. As Paul said, you are temples of the Holy Spirit. You yourself actually have God within you. You don't know it necessarily, but we are trying to show you that that is what is the case. It may only be a seed, but you need to fertilize it. You need to water it. You need to become more and more aware of it. And as you do, to become aware that you need to follow it and obey it. We're finished here with second preface. Any other comments on the second preface? And we'll go on to the third and last preface in a minute. Henry, something occurred to me when Shuin is referring to the light that shines out of darkness. If you only look at that word darkness in the Greek, you miss, I think, what is being implied there. Because the Greek, as I understand it, meant obscurity and nothing more. But if you go back to the Hebrew, that word darkness in the Hebrew had seven different things, and I can remember six. It was obscurity, (laughs) death, misery, sorrow, ignorance, wickedness, and something else. 
So the light is the thing that counters all of these seven layers of darkness. Yes, I think also you may have skipped one there. My understanding is the Greek also means ignorance. Okay. I'm trying to look it up quickly here. No, it just says darkness in, in this little dictionary. Yes, there's much more to that. Thanks, thanks for that explanation. Anything else before we go on to the third preface? Okay, this is a very interesting preface. He's here talking to any nominal Christian, any Christian in name only, who happens to come across this book and starts to read it. It's an interesting perspective he has here to be writing specifically to those people that he is going to show what the problem is that he sees in their beliefs and their understandings and their ways. Something by way of caution and warning to the titular Christian, to the Christian in name only, to whose hand this following treatise, this book, may come. Okay, he says here, I have some sense upon my mind that you will, upon your reading of this, be ready to censure and judge those things you do not understand or have had any experience of and also to deride and mock at the frequent testimonies and exhortations to the light within, the grace within, the spirit within, the power of God within, the word of God within, the law of the spirit within, etc. Consider what you are doing, and against what and whom you are opening your mouth, and fear the living God, whom, in words only, You are professing to be a spirit infinite, omnipresent, and almighty. Which spirit examines your heart and judges, assesses, and condemns your ways, though you at present are ignorant and unbelieving concerning him and his being so near you? I should just stop there. There's so much there where he uses this litany of phrases the light within, the grace within, the spirit within, the power of God within, the word of God within, the law, that is the law of the spirit within, a kingdom of God within, the love of God. There are many of these, they're all related. They all refer to that spirit of God within us. So often in the epistles and letters of George Fox, you find this litany of these phrases, plus more and dozens of those letters. We're talking about the same inward, this interior seed of God in us that may be viewed from different perspectives. It might seem like a grace, a a help given us. At other times, it might seem like light, illumination. We're talking here about the power of God within, the word of God, where God is expressing himself within us, trying to get through our thick skulls. The law that is the law of the spirit within, the rules of divinity, divine rule within us. So what Chuan is saying is here, you nominal Christian might be mocking at our constantly talking about these and deriding what we're saying. But this is crucial. This is crucial. The anointed one, that is the Christ within, the Messiah within. It's so important to be aware of this to listen to it and obey it. Comments? I think so often in the ways of religion, there seems to be a way that seems right and godly and good, but then the spirit indicates elsewise. (laughs) And so man dreams up many ways of being holy or producing his own holiness instead of relying and receiving that which is live streaming from God. 
Yeah, that brings up another issue that he doesn't speak of it here in this preface, but later on in a couple of places, especially towards the end of the whole work, about how you have to be very careful that you might be thinking something is the light within when it is the serpent, Satan himself, disguising himself like light, an angel of light, messenger of light. So you always have to be on your guard and really, really pray for guidance from that guide. Well, just to counter that a bit would be to say that you rely on the light. You abide in the light and the light shows you what is true and what is false. So it's not something that we are trying to figure out in our natural intelligence, but it's something that we receive from the light as we dwell and abide in it. In the history of Quakerism in the 19th century in the United States, there was such a departure from later people who called themselves Quakers that some rejected the light within. It's amazing how over time one can lose something that seems so clear and so profound once it's presented to you and realize that, yes, this is what Scripture is saying. Even before Scripture was written in the Old Testament, when the Word of God came to the various prophets, they didn't have any Scripture to rely on. And even if they had some, I know even in the 17th century, around the year 1640, they think that only about 30% of men, men, uh, males in England could read. It's what you heard, what you learned orally from others. That's how you got your knowledge. Okay, let's go on here. And also consider within yourself how, if you do not know the light, light of Christ shining within and a walking, you're conducting yourself in that light, you are no child of it. But darkness, ignorance, all those other forms of darkness that Ellis just pointed out, abounds in you. And you do not know where you are going or at what you are stumbling. If you do not know grace to rule and reign within you, sin is ruling and death, the wages of them, are present with you. If the Spirit of God, thou knowest, not teaching and ruling in your heart, and sitting upon the throne there. The spirit of Satan, devil, and antichrist are ruling you and teaching there. A slave of sin, a bond slave of them, of that evil. Profess whatever you will. And if the power of God you do not know working within yourself and operating in your heart, not only to shake, pull down, and remove that which can be shaken and removed, but also to bring in that which cannot be shaken or removed, namely everlasting righteousness. I say, if this you do not know, the power of the enemy of God and your soul is working in you and prevailing over you through working in your imaginings, your will and feelings, mind and bodily members, that which is evil, either in egotistical sinning or self-righteousness, egotistical righteousness, which are both abomination to the Lord. So if you do not know the word of God within you, in your mouth and in your heart, with the virtues and properties of them, to be like a hammer, like a fire, alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, and you are not hearing and obeying its voice. I say, if this word, this word of God, you do not know within, you are not experiencing within, 
you are not made clean or made holy by it, but rather those things are standing in you against which it is like a hammer, fire, sword, sharp and powerful. And the word and commands of the old serpent, Satan, that betrayer, is sounding loud in your ears and piercing deep into your heart, and you are carried away with its wind, and you are entering into his temptations daily, and you do not know the power against them. So you cannot say, as David once did, quote, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Neither have you received with gentleness the ingrafted word which is able to save you, to heal you. But rather, you are of those whom Christ spoke to. You do not have his word, speaking of his Father, abiding in you. It's interesting to note that who Jesus was speaking about, they had the scriptures memorized. Yeah. But he said you don't have his word in you, speaking about the voice of God, obviously. But their confusion was that they thought that by knowing the scriptures that they could find life in the scriptures. And then he said, no, come to me. I'm the one who has life to give to you. (laughs) Right. I think you're referring to chapter 5 of John, where Jesus is speaking to those who pour over the scriptures, trying to find God in the scriptures. But they don't realize it's not in the words. It's something behind the words. It's in Christ himself. It reminds me uh, when George Fox said to some of the clergy and so on, when they would rant on and on and on about Jesus, he would say, well, what can you say from your own experience rather than from what somebody taught you? There's a statement I may have mentioned here already in an earlier session that Robert Barclay, I believe it's in his apology. I'm pretty sure it's in the apology in talking about the Bible, but it's actually something very similar that Fox mentioned on more than one occasion. If you have that same spirit within you to that same degree, you can write scripture. That spirit is the same spirit, that the canon of the Bible is not a closed book necessarily. When we are to have that same spirit, to get to that same level of virtual achievement that those actual writers of the Bible attain to, that's an amazing thing to say. So that the Bible itself is not a closed book in the understanding of early Quakers. And you say, wow. Okay, we'll read this section here and then we'll stop. And if you do not know the law of the spirit of life, eternal life within you, written in your inward faculties, faculties of your mind, you are a stranger to the new covenant, to the New Testament. And the law of sin and death has power over you. And the law that is in your bodily members leads you captive to them. And the carnal mind, the the worldly mind, which is enmity against God and cannot be subject to his law, reigns in you. And though you profess, in your words, the law of God with your tongue, you do not love it nor delight in it in your heart. Neither is it better in your esteem than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Okay, I think we will stop there. Any last comments, questions? I love how when we're abiding with God that he emancipates us from these slaveries to these lesser things that just lead to death and misery and suffering. (laughs) And that he brings us into his kingdom of light, of joy and of peace, and gives us his heart, which is innocent and is full of mercy and compassion and kindness to other people. 
and sets it right even towards ourselves and to all of creation. And it's not something that we have to work to produce ourselves. It's a free gift that is given as we abide. The way of religion always saying, you have to do this and you have to be righteous and you have to produce your own righteousness <laughs> and you have to avoid this sin. And there's a whole list of things. Whereas the kingdom of God is so simple that we focus on God, that of God within us, the light. And we wait in that light until the light lifts us over the darkness of our own darkness, let alone the world's darkness. And there's such a simplicity to the one thing that is paramount, which is focusing on that of God within us. It's simple to explain, but it's not always easy to do. Waiting is not easy for some of us. Yes, being slaves to sin, I'm thinking as Chad was commenting on being captive, so often, again, in a correct translation of the New Testament, you find that Paul, he'll say he's a servant of Jesus Christ. The Greek says he's a slave to anointed Jesus, to Messiah Jesus. He's not a slave anymore to sin. A slave just following your carnal, your worldly inclinations, those addictions or whatever. Okay, it's getting late, so I think we'll stop there. For, we'll finish that third preface next time and then go on to section one. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote from George Fox in our introduction came from the first chapter of his journal, printed in 1831 by Marcus and Hopper. A link is in the description. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.